If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. That's right. It is the Heretic Happy Hour, and you, my friends, are in for a fantastic treat. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am one of a plethora of hosts in the newly Heretic Happy Hour 2.0 podcast. Um, we are in the middle of a, well, not in the middle of, I guess you were at the end of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So this will this will wrap us up on the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, I'm also joined by these other guys and gals around the uh, circle here. So guys, um, introduce yourself, please. I'll go first. Hey, everyone, Katie Valentine, and I am super happy to keep on talking about Sermon on the Mount and speaking truth into power today. So I'll, I'll skip books and stuff uh, for today and just pass it on, pass on the mic. Cool. I am Derek Day. I'm an author, former pastor, full-time curmudgeon. <laughs> I don't think, are you as much of a curmudgeon as you like to say? Come on, man. Don't, don't, don't try to rat me out. What's the most curmudgeonly <laughs> thing you've done today, Derek? Today. Today? Hmm. I came perilously close to telling somebody to go fuck themselves. Well, see, see, everybody comes close to doing that, right? Well, you know what? It's like you're trying to maintain this facade of decency. Yeah. But it's tough. It, it's tough. It's tough. I'm going to see what Jesus has to say about that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's right. Well, well before, we, before we do that, can I introduce myself? I am Matt DeStefano, and I am going to introduce books that I have, or at least one. I have a book called Heretic. I want everyone to go buy it because I'm still super proud after two years of it being out that that I wrote that book. And so I want everyone to go pick it up today, either on Kindle or audiobook if you don't like reading, or if you like to hold a book in your hand, go pick up uh, a, a regular book. And it's out now on choir. Yeah. Hey, and that book is awesome. It is. I'm serious. Book. Thank it, you. It changed, it changed my life. Matter of fact, for, for the better, I hope. Say, I, <laughs> there, listen, there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a good chance that I would not be here with you guys today without that book. All right. Whoa. Whoa. Great endorsement. Damn. Man, You're welcome. Down. You're welcome, listeners. Write that down. That's a, what an endorsement. Hey, and I'm not just—I'm not just clowning. That's no bullshit. I mean, for real. Well, I appreciate that. Awesome. That, ma- that makes me feel all warm and warm and fuzzy inside. The, cool. See, Derek, you're not a curmudgeon. It's proof right there. Ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Derek, all right. Well, we got to get to the next part. Derek, do you got? Do we got a hotline to introduce today? Yeah, I think that we do actually have a hotline. And so, if you are interested in reaching out to the Heretic Happy Hour crew, you can do so by exercising the dexterity of your index finger and dialing two four zero three four three seven three seven nine. And with that being said, roll tape. Hey guys, my name is Jamie Gretzel. Um, I was new listening to your podcast today. My husband's been a longtime fan, and he told me to check out the episode PSA for PSA. So I started doing that um, today, started listening in, and I wanted to give a concern. Um, I've got lots of concerns about Christianity. I've been deconstructing it for years. I've grown up in it my whole life. But my concern was about your episode um, that I was listening to today. And what I felt was a sexualizing of Katie, and I thought it was really unfortunate. So as she's um, turned to as the scholar um, in the area of people that you're addressing um, today, and I put the 
kind of joking about the word in and of itself, but when Derek commented to her um, that it sounded sexier when she said it, I thought it was a very unfortunate sexualizing of her and a woman using that word and how that sounded, as opposed to respecting her um, as the scholar in the moment, helping enlighten us to that topic and what it really means, rather than demeaning and pulling her down to sexualized in that moment. So I wanted to give my concern as you guys enter your 2.0 season um, that you would do better and get better um, than that moment. There's a lot of growth needed, and that's an area for it. So, again, my name is Jamie, and the last name is Grapple. Thanks for your time. Wow. Dang, Jamie, bringing it home, bringing yeah. it home. So um, I'll, I'll just speak from my experience. I um, I, I kind of remember it. I, I didn't experience that in the moment. And I'm very attuned to gendered um, perceptions, comments, tones, um, uh, unwritten, written, you know, the ones that are obvious and then the ones that are very subtle. So I'm impressed that you picked up on it. Um, Derek and I have known each other for a while. And so... Um, I think I probably experienced that in a really different way. But what I what I'm enjoying about your comment actually very much is that um, sometimes intent and impact can be really different. And so the impact on me was really different than the impact that you picked up on. And of course, the the other co-host and I talk um, a, a lot off air as we're preparing things and cordial, respectful, snarky, all of the above. Um, and so I. I appreciate just kind of high, you know, highlighting the issue because the issue is bigger than any one comment. And that's something that we just need to be bringing up in the world. So yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, hopefully in other episodes you've seen, you've been able to experience the camaraderie and the great respect that we do all have for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to step in here because that was right up my alley. And, and I wish you guys could see, the look of incredulity on my face right now. And, and here's the thing. Um, first of all, I have the utmost respect for Katie Valentine. I absolutely adore uh, her as a person. I, I respect and deeply um, defer to her scholarship. And one of the things that you need to know about me personally, is that I am not a chauvinistic guy by any stretch of the imagination. And what I really want, and, and I appreciate, you know, the defense of, of Katie, I, I really do. However, uh, I want you to know that um, I am, I understand where you're coming from, but um, I, I'm, I'm not going to temper who I am. For for the to in 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 deference to political correctness, and that's yeah. my, that's my two cents. And and I think something important to remember is that us talking to each other is going to have one impact, like Katie said, and then what others hear is going to have a different impact. And so, I, I think I understand both sides. Like, I have no doubt that. Derek, that all of us have a lot of respect for Katie. And, and if something, and Katie can certainly speak for herself and stand on her own two feet. And if she felt um, something was amiss in anything that is said would definitely clap back to us and rightfully so. 
Um, but I understand the other side and people listening to a conversation and hearing something that impacts them in a certain way where it doesn't impact Katie specifically. So I, I mean, I personally like that we have calls like this that come into the show that push back on things. And, but at the same time, like, yeah, it is, it is one of those things where sometimes we can make jokes or little offhanded remarks that we think nothing of, but other people might think something of. So I, I, on the one hand, get it. But on the other hand, it's like, well, do better. And it's like, well, okay, that one I kind of wrestle with because sometimes you make jokes that are quote unquote sexist, but you do it in a certain company and, and no one takes offense to it because we understand the camaraderie that's there. Yeah. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I would also say too, like I couldn't help but think at, as she was, uh, and th- by the way, thank you for your call. And we don't at, at all ever want to discourage anybody from making a call like that. Please call mm-hmm. us out. We, we're open to that. You know, the whole, the whole vibe of this podcast is the fact that we want to model what it looks like to disagree and still love one another. And so, um, you know, Katie knows, I I know she knows that if she ever feels like we're, we cross a line, please let us know that we are open to that and that correction. Um, but at the same time, I also was thinking like we did a PSA podcast even before we started the Heritage Happy Hour officially. And we've, and we've mentioned PSA over the last 70 or something, uh, episodes we've done of the of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and I don't think we have ever once. I, I'm go, I'm going to go in and say not one time when we discussed PSA theory did we ever miss a chance to make the penis penile penal substitutionary joke. We made it every freaking time, and it's just a joke that we make all the time because we think it's funny as we are trying to sort of not very not very subtly mock. Uh, a view that we don't have much respect for, which is PSA theory. So, um, and again, so if anything like that was said or was done, it certainly is not against Katie uh, at all. And again, I, I'm going to just throw in my my public endorsement as well of Katie Valentine. Dr. Katie Valentine is a freaking awesome, amazing, genius person. Yes. And if she wasn't, she wouldn't be on this podcast. That's the reason we find <laughs> her. And and I'll, I'll go in and admit, I am more than a little intimidated by Katie being on this podcast because she is effing smart. And so we, I think we all back off and, re- and defer to her. And again, you may not be able to see in it because you can't see our faces or our postures, but we respect the hell out of Katie Valentine and love her and are so glad that she's here and are willing, more than willing, to learn from her and her expertise. Oh my gosh. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. I, you know, it's, I, I want to, I just want to respond again briefly to the, um, just Derek and I are, are more than cool, right? <laughs> like, like more than cool. So I've no, there's no problems there. Um, but I also, and, and thanks, uh, no one ever defer to me ever, please challenge me. Uh, but, <laughs> but the, oh, hey, smarts the, are smarts. I mean, it, <laughs> right. listen, it's like, I defer to my, to my physician because I don't know what my physician knows. Right. Um, we only all know, I will tell you that I think you're wrong. Right. Yes. We only, we all only know what we, what we do know. Right. So I I don't know what any of your perspectives are until we start talking about it, but the, the genderization happens in such a subtle unconscious way. And I, I certainly experience being gendered and genderizations, you know, all day, every day, any woman listening to this podcast, anyone who's non-binary, you know, um, will, un- will understand that. And I'm, I'm sure men do too. 
um, cis men do too, but in a very different way. And so I want to thank the caller for raising the issue because obviously subtle and non-subtle genderizations that are damaging to women happen all the time. And it's an important part of the deconstruction process. Right. And I just want to say we're here for it. I want to say this for the record that I am an equal opportunity abuser. And that being (laughs) said, offender, uh, abuser, no abuser. (laughs) Okay. Abuser. abuser, Listen, I'm, I'm standing by it, but here, here we go. Right. Just for the record um, that Matt and Keith, I think you guys are absolutely fucking sexy. Ooh, yeah, baby. You're pretty hot yourself. Nice. We might need to get our art redone. (laughs) There you go. To reflect the awesomeness of all of us. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Yeah, dead sexy. (laughs) Cool. Well, I, yeah. So I thank you for the call. This has been uh, interesting to talk about. Um, Don't stop. Don't stop calling in. You know, this is really great fodder, but um, I feel like we've, We've talked about it and settled settled it for now. So how about if we move on to our Heretic of the Week? It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Dylan Neighbor Cruz, and I am a heretic. Hi, Hi Dylan. Dylan. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the most enthusiastic podcast you've ever been on. Yeah. So Dylan, uh, Matt here. Welcome. I know we've been Facebook friends for a while. It's good to finally talk to you. Um, as you might know, what we like to do is start by asking our guests, why do you, you introduce yourself as a heretic? Uh, so, so many reasons. Um, I think the first time that anybody ever called me a heretic was probably my first wife back in about 2002. when. Uh, I told her that my Christianity boiled down to the golden rule and the greatest commandment. And she looked at me and said, oh, you're doing all that Bob Marley hippie shit again. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, so fundamentally. Did you light up and just say, yeah. Yeah, Bob. Uh, hey, yeah, listen, you're, you're my kind of guy already. Just keep going. And it kind of went downhill from there. I... I had this really crazy belief, uh, having grown up in rural North Texas, that the earth mattered, Uh, you know, the physical planet that we live on mattered. And when I started to express some of that belief, um, she told me, and I quote, it doesn't matter what we do to this planet, God's going to make us a new one. Mm -hmm. And pretty much things unraveled. badly for me and fundamentalist uh, Southern Baptist uh, theology and church membership from there. And I walked away from the church uh, because I didn't see Jesus. I saw a lot of American nationalism and warmongering instead. Mm-hmm. Bingo. So, yeah. Um, that's why people call me a heretic. Oh, and I say fuck a lot. So. <laughs> welcome. You welcome to the right club. In. Welcome. There you go. Yeah, You're among fuck, friends. Fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I think I met my quota there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, you know, you know were you were you married to Ann Coulter by any chance? <laughs> um, I was married to a woman who read her books. Oh, okay. <laughs> and yeah. I I distinctly remember one time uh, picking it up, shall I say, in the library and um, thumbing through it and reading about three pages and being absolutely mortified. And and keep in mind, this was still when I was pretty well immersed into fundamentalism uh and you know america rah rah go team go kind of the american civic christianity and oh my god i read i read like three pages of one of culture's books and i was fucking horrified yeah Well, that's that just means you have a pulse and a heart. That's right. Part of your conversion yeah. away Ed, and culture can be partly responsible for that. It, it yeah. also says he has a brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I think is fascinating? I, I feel like someone should be keeping track somewhere. But I, I, I just almost every time I feel like I talk to somebody about their deconstruction process, the word Southern Baptist is always in there somewhere near the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I had I grew up with this really toxic, horrible mix of Southern Baptist and hyper conservative Church of Christ theology battling in my head. Holy uh, shit! With with my Southern Baptist Church fighting over my soul with my grandparents' Church of Christ Church. So I actually got baptized twice because my Church of Christ grandparents didn't think the first one in the Baptist Church counted. How old were you at the for the first one? Uh, 12, and I was 14 for the second. And that means you were a heretic before you were a heretic. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I got a, I got started on the, the slippery slope pretty early. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'll, that'll mess you up. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I love that it's your kind of relationship with the earth that you mentioned that has been so important to you. And I would just love to hear a little bit more about that and how maybe that is part of your deconstruction and and lead us on this journey here. I'm fascinated and I love earth-centered everything, but I can't keep a plant alive. So I'm, I'm really curious to know how you do it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, deconstruction for me goes back to a very specific moment in time when I was nine years old. We were living with my grandparents at the time. Um, and a cemetery plot salesman, I shit you not, a cemetery plot salesman came to sell my grandparents uh, some cemetery plots. And so my sister and I have an uncle who's six months younger than me. We were all in the back dining room watching TV while this was happening. And our grandparents or my grandparents called us in and the cemetery plot salesman leads us on the Roman road of salvation, telling me as a nine year old, my sister as a six year old and my uncle as an eight year old. That if we if we didn't say the magic prayer uh, that night and we died, we would roast in hell forever. Mm. So um, I Good said news. the magic bean words, <laughs> yeah, and um, and so that kind of got me locked into uh, a fear based um, theology before I even knew what theology meant. And then I became a Southern Baptist at 12 and uh, my grandparents' uh, church when, when I was going to see them in the summertime was Church of Christ, one cup, one loaf, no Sunday school, all of that, uh, no instrumental music because there's no instrumental music mentioned in the New Testament. 
very strange parsing out of, of theology. Yeah. But I also grew up in rural North Texas in a town called Blue Ridge. And so, you know, being out in the pasture, going fishing, going hunting, uh, growing vegetables, uh, raising our food, it put me into a connection with the earth that uh, made a lot of sense to me as a rural kid. And then later in life, I used to read a lot of Mother Earth news and uh, want to go back to the land and that sort of thing. And then I discovered permaculture in 2007. And permaculture is a system of ecological design that seeks to create uh, what permaculture's um, Toby Hemingway called cultivated ecosystems. And these cultivated ecosystems don't just support human life and human needs, but they foster all life. And that's why it's an ecosystem and not just a garden. Oh, wow. And one of the things that really created animosity between my ex and I was I got this tattoo. It's a Japanese kanji. And it says in Japanese, respect the earth. And I got it as a conversation starter so that when people look at my tattoo, they'd be like, yo, what's that mean? And I'd say, it means respect the earth. And she said, why the hell did you get that? You just want to worship trees. <laughs> uh, so you're which a tree I hugger. heavily. Yeah. Um, and in some ways she was right. But more, I've come to understand it more in the terms of like in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, their iconography, they don't worship these icons. They venerate them. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a step down from worship or idolatry. And I learned this uh, Russian Orthodox proverb that says the earth is the icon that God wears around God's neck. Wow. And that, to me, encapsulates Genesis chapter one. After everything that God created, we're told that God said it was very good. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And not only that, it provided for all the earth's needs. So I look at the Garden of Eden uh, as the first permaculture design site and God as the ultimate permaculture designer. I can no longer separate um, permaculture and theology. They are inextricably linked for me because permaculture has a set of ethics of what I, as I espouse them in my book, Go Golden, creation care neighbor care, and future care. So creation care is care for the only planet that God gave us. And how do we do that? By taking care of it, conserving it, and creating regenerative ecosystems, not just sustainable, but regenerative. And then neighbor care is, well, that's the golden rule. That is the love of neighbor. And as I explicate in my book, that that touches every aspect of life because in Matthew seven twelve it says in everything you do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so as a permaculturist, I think, okay, so everything that I do, well, that means uh, when I flush the toilet, uh, when I wash my clothes, when I go to the grocery store, when I walk into the voting booth, when I think about matters of war and peace, I need to be thinking about how this affects my neighbors. And as the lawyer asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Well, we live in a globalized world now. So that means everybody from 
A to Z is my neighbor from Algeria to Zimbabwe. They're all my neighbors. Mm -hmm. Everybody lives in a watershed. I learned in sixth grade uh, physical science class that a liquid fills its container. And so if you put something bad in that container of water, then it's going to go fill that container. So I live in the Susquehanna River watershed. And that means that the Susquehanna River and all the creeks and everything that where I live, they flow right into the Chesapeake Bay, which is this marvelous estuary with a profundity of life that comes together because of this ecotone where freshwater and saltwater come and they create this entirely new ecosystem Mm. that creates niches for lots of different kind of life. So that's why anytime you have these two ecosystems that come together, that's where the most diversity happens. So it's like that great theologian Bruce Lee once said, be like water. Exactly. Be Mm. like water. Think like water. Mm -hmm. So all of these kind of things, these things have been kicking around in my head for a long time. And in 2003, I was in a I was in a chapel at uh, on a military installation on the island of Oahu um, near Wheeler Army Airfield, and it was in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I was putting some Sunday school material down in a six and seven year old children's class. My daughter's uh, best friend, her father, walked into the Sunday school room and said. Bush has had enough. We're going to war, baby. <laughs> and I was like, nope. I put the material down. I turned on my heels. I walked out the door and I didn't walk into another church on purpose again until 2004. Wow. Right. Yeah. Now, and that, then, that, that's a great pivot point there because this is what I want to ask you. You're, you, you went to Lancaster Theological Seminary. That's right. And, and, and so, you know, that is a... It's a very well-known and, and a fairly conservative um, seminary. So no. how do you how do you know? No, I, I no. always thought I, I thought the Lancaster was uh, no Lancaster. Generally speaking, is a Lancaster Bible College is a it's an evangelical uh, school. Uh, oh yeah, okay. okay. Lancaster okay. Theological is UCC, correct? Okay, yes. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's here's my thing. How how do you go from being a a uh, a crossbreed between a Southern Baptist Church of Christ uh, theolog- uh, theological seminarian to where you are now, and in, into well, the perma- permaculture. I mean, what was the pivot? What 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 took you from there to here? Well, when I walked out of the chapel that day, I felt a lot of anger and disillusionment. I I didn't see Matthew five nine anywhere. And anything that I was hearing, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. And so then I went on a spiritual wilderness journey um, where I didn't go to church for a long time. And then I went uh, with an ex-girlfriend one night and the preacher looked at me when I refused communion and gave me a dirty look. So that was in 2004. I didn't go to another church again until 2015. And in that interim time, I learned a lot about myself and that I, you know, I, I went to a, a, a UU church briefly. I, I read a bunch about Buddhism uh, back in 2006. I started reading uh, 
Bart Ehrman's popular works back in sort of 2007, eight, uh, that helped give me a little bit of a academic deconstruction. Uh, and at the same time, just infuriated me like, why the fuck didn't anybody tell me this stuff before that was right there? You know, uh, pastors, chaplains, whomever. Yeah. And then one day I was, you know, I'm, I'm 48 now. And this was about, um, this was 2015 when this happened, I was having a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an Enneagram four. So we're pretty good at that sort of stuff. Yes, um, we are. <laughs> Solidarity. <laughs> that's right. And I, I did this meditation technique, uh, that I use with the rattle that a shaman made. And I got this find your focus. That was what came out of the meditation. Find your focus. So I talked to my best friend from high school. His name is Jeff Mahan. And it was funny because back when I was a fundamentalist, he wasn't going to church. And then I stopped going and he started going. And so I said, man, I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I'm 43, 44, whatever it was. And he said, just leave it with me, Dale, and I'll pray about it. I have the gift of discernment. And I was like, all right, my friend, you go to it. About two weeks later, he gets back to me and he says, you're supposed to tell Christian America about permaculture. And I went, dude, I'm not a Christian anymore. He goes, I don't know what to tell you, man. That's between you and God. I'm just telling you what God told. Me. I was like, all right. And I went for a walk with a friend of mine and I told him about this. And he said, hey, did you ever think about going to seminary? And I said, yeah, back in 2009 when we jointly lived a block from the seminary. But, you know, that kind of went by the wayside. And 15 minutes later, I met a graduate of Lancaster Theological Seminary. He handed me his card, said he wanted to talk to me. And before long, I was in the admissions office telling them all the reasons why I shouldn't go to school there. <laughs> and uh, then I found myself filling out an application and uh, going to school really finding that I thrived in that environment. And then I started going to church again. And one Sunday morning, I finally decided to go take communion. And it was the first time I'd taken communion since probably like 2002. I walked up. Uh, we did communion by intention at that church. I took the piece of bread. I dipped it in the wine. I went back. And as soon as, I mean, I mean, as soon as my butt, hit the pew. I fucking lost it. I started bawling like a small child. And I can only attribute that to grace. I felt a grace in that moment that told me that God loved me and that I'm enough that washed at least a, a, a surface layer of the PTSD and the trauma that I've experienced away and all of the hurt and ridicule from adults when I was a child and from pastors who told me I was going to fry. Uh, I, I got touched in a way that I don't think I'd ever been touched oh. in a fundamentalist uh, church. Well, it's, I love it that it was the fruit of the earth that brought you that moment. Yeah. Right? The wheat and the, and the grape juice and I'm I'm now in a tradition that celebrates communion every Sunday. And so like you're just speaking to my heart <laughs> right now yes. as well with that and uh, that connection for you with permaculture. That's just really profound. Well, one of the things that was really striking to me was that in the Church of Christ tradition that I went to, 
they have very closed communion. So if you weren't baptized in a church of Christ, you can't take communion. And what Wisdom's Table does, the church that I'm a member of now, is they have open communion. And they say that you don't have to be a member of this or any other church. We've had Jewish people take communion. We've had Muslim people take communion. We've had atheists take communion. Yep. And it is an open table. And I learned in my seminary class and my um, New Testament classes and biblical interpretation classes that that's how Jesus did it, too. And I was like, why didn't anybody ever tell me this when I was, you know, a kid? And there was this idea of, no, you can't do this Um, in, in, in the Church of Christ. And there wasn't so much of that in the Southern Baptist Church, but communion was only like once a quarter. And it seemed like it wasn't even a thing. You know, it wasn't really a big deal. And at Wisdom's Table, it was a big, big deal. There, there's kind of a tie-in to your book in that, in that uh, you know, basically you were, we're talking about the the uh, the Lord's Supper and communion, and and then when when we just to tie that back to communing with nature, you know, mm-hmm. in, in other words, that the communion that we have with Christ uh, it should be as natural as communing with nature. I mean, it should be. It, it it just should be a, a natural flowing uh, thing, and um, you know I'm I'm of the mindset that if you uh, you know if you believe in taking communion, then you should be uh, you should be open to taking communion daily. Um, I know, like uh, when when I um, pastored a church before we shut it down, we um, made the the uh, the table available every Sunday, and mm-hmm. and we also we also uh, put together kits. To give to the, uh, the 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 church family that you could take this home at any time, you know, is we do this as often as we think of him. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I love absolutely. that. Yeah. So I'm yeah, thinking our, about our, communing, communing with nature and 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 communion. That just that just really resonated uh, with my spirit. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was great. I, I what I wanted to say, Dylan. I, what I think is beautiful is just how grace was imparted to you, like how you experienced that beautiful moment of grace. And I love that it was in communion. And I even love that it was in, you know, a church setting, because I I think so many people I talk to, um, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of people I talk to that have deconstructed their faith, um, their moment of grace comes outside the church. It comes in spite of church. It comes in spite Mm -hmm. of those things. And I think it's just beautiful that, I mean, I, your your testimony is such a great story because I think it's it's a it's just reminding us all of us, even if we have deconstructed, even if we never want to enter a church ever again, uh, that like God will meet us wherever we're at. He extends grace to us in whatever way we need it. And I just think it's beautiful that you had that beautiful experience uh, and really experienced communion in a way you had never experienced it before. Like it was it wasn't just a, a cup and some bread, right? It was it was a spiritual experience that was unlike anything you'd had to that point. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about um, this idea of the golden rule. And we're we're right in the middle of talking about the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I can't mm-hmm. wait to hear how you're tying this together with permaculture and love of neighbor, mm-hmm. love of self. What, what does the golden rule mean to you? As I said, kind of in the beginning, I think, it, I think it's really the hinge point that whole, or, the, or, or sort of the, the keystone uh, of the arch that is the Christian faith. Because Jesus said that 
It's the summate. That one sentence is the entirety of the law and the prophets. And then if you look at um, Luke 10, 25 through 37, the love of neighbor and, and love of God, that, that is just like it. But it's the in everything part. And that, that really sticks out to me because as a permaculturist, you know, I, I overthink things because I want to see a sustainable uh, way of producing our food, our fuel, our fiber that uh, creates regeneration and fosters the life that God uh, blessed us all with. So I think everything that I think about and do, and, and this is very aspirational. Aspirational is the key word here. I I flounder at this all the time. And I think the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount really is aspirational, too. Uh, there's a lot of scholarly debate about whether or not this is sort of a thing that we actually ever get to or not. But it's in the trying that I think is important. But if you, if you parse out what our day-to-day life is like, and we think beyond our own self and our own sphere of influence, um, then the golden rule becomes important to think about in terms of how is my action here today where I live in Lancaster County affecting people that live down in Maryland at the mouth of the Chesapeake? or how is what I'm doing in the voting booth affecting my neighbors in Palestine or Iraq or Afghanistan? I love the, you know, from very local to very global perspective that you're bringing to this. So I can't, I can't wait to read the book. So, so Dylan, um, this has been great, but I know people are going to want to check, check you out further. So where can, where can people get, the book go golden and where can people get in touch with you online okay so in a very ironic twist I, a book about biblical ethics is being sold on amazon uh, <laughs> well so, i'm right there with you sometimes yeah <laughs> yeah uh so you can find it on amazon just google dylan neighbor cruise uh go golden and, and it'll come right up i also have a blog uh that i try to update uh, once a week um, if I can, but I do work full time. I work and I, and I want to plug this because this is important. Uh, this is the, the neighbor care portion of what my permaculture work is. Now I work for an organization called CASA of Lancaster County and CASA stands for court appointed special advocates. And there are CASA programs around the country. There, I think are a thousand of them. And what, uh, CASAs and guardian ad litems, they are called in some other places do is help to find stable, loving homes for kids that are in the foster care system, whether that's a reunification with uh, biological parents or family members or finding a forever home with an adoptive family. And so this is right here in my county. This is neighbor care in a nutshell. Um, So that's that's one way uh, that I do permaculture work here and uh, people wherever they are across America. CASAs are always looking for, CASA programs are always looking for volunteers. 
So uh, go do that. Um, I'm also on a blog called TattooedTheologian.com. There's a dash between tattooed and theologian, uh, and it'll say charis, uh, the Greek uh, word for grace, on the picture. That's how you know it's mine and not the uh, Catholic theologian who also has a tattooed theologian uh, blog. Oh, wow. Well, cool. Good stuff. Yeah, so we encourage everyone to do that. Check that out. Dylan, thank you so much for, for being our guest today. Yeah, uh, thank you, Dylan. I'm inspired to go yeah. take care of my plant window now. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's, it's been a long-time goal to uh, be on here with Matt and Keith and now Katie and Derek. Awesome. Well, thanks, awesome. Love you, man. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Dylan. God bless. Wow, Dylan, great conversation. Yeah, I mean, just. I'm so excited I mean, about my plants now. <laughs> Getting them well, I, alive again. I, I love dorking out on that stuff. I love the whole permaculture thing. And I, I love that Dylan, I, I haven't heard it uh, done too often, um, tying in theology and ecology. I know, I know there are people out there doing that. Um, but I just, I just like that I, that I have a friend on Facebook who does that kind of stuff because I geek out on it too. So yeah, thanks Dylan for coming on the show. Yeah, tying in all of the ologies into one nice little package. It's, yeah, it's so wonderful. I've been, um, it's fun to revisit like Genesis 1 and some of all the scriptures that have to do with yeah. earth-based, um, yeah, earth-based stuff. So thank you. Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. So maybe yeah. it's, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, um, the golden rule there with Dylan, and uh, maybe that's a good way to swing us into our topic for this podcast. We're going to attempt to Really, we're, you know, we're, just, we're not really going completely through the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of hitting the highlights, but uh, we're going to wrap up the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think in this episode, what we wanted to talk about was um, how Jesus kind of uh, corrects or re- reframes uh, some of the Ten Commandments, right? And, um, and if we can, maybe also talk about what he said about divorce, uh, which I think is probably different than most people typically understand it. but. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get into it, guys. Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Law and Prophets. I, um, you know, it, what's interesting to me on 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 this one is is uh, the kind of the stock or rote answer that you you hear growing up. At least I heard in the church was that, oh, now we're in the New Testament, we have Jesus, we don't have to worry about the Old Testament because, or or, or, or the other way, like we we still have the Old Testament because Jesus didn't come to abolish it but to fulfill it. So then it gets into this wonky interpretation of how it relates to our Christian walk and all that. And I don't know, I just, I'd like to go deeper on this one and get, and get down to it because I don't think, I don't think we can, we can just be so binary and say, well, Jesus is here, so we don't need it, but, or, but Jesus said he didn't come to abolish it. So let's just become Levitical priests or something. Right. Yeah. And I, I have a very, I'm going to say probably a pretty strong opinion, especially about specifically this first statement that Jesus makes about, you know, I came not to abolish the law uh, and the prophets and they will know why disappear, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I, I have a very strong view on how I read that and understand that, which probably leads into and bleeds into a lot of my other understanding of Jesus and the new Testament as well. So, but I have no idea, like Katie was saying, I really have no idea really for sure what certainly what katie or derek think about this passage uh, i think i know what where matt would be but i'm maybe i'm wrong but i'm curious about what you guys think before i jump in with anything um 
how would we how would we understand this when Jesus says it's uh, Matthew? Where are we going to be? Right, five seventeen through twenty. Let me let me make yeah. it real simple. This is real simple, real simple explanation, right? For those of you who have either owned a home or have taken out a loan for a car or anything like that, where where you have a a fixed number of payments uh, pertaining to whatever it is that you purchase, that once you pay that off, that note is fulfilled. It's satisfied. It's mm-hmm. not that it never existed, but it's been satisfied. Now, this is an interesting, um, I, I've had several homes in my lifetime and I've refinanced several homes in my lifetime. And one of the interesting things that happens that when you go to refinance a house, you go to closing and at closing, a check is cut for the remaining balance of your mortgage, of the original mortgage. At that point, that original debt is satisfied. Now, imagine if you're at the closing table and you have signed all the papers and they cut the check and this check is going off to your original lender and it's going to pay off the loan, but but somebody steps into the room and says, oh, by the way, Derek, you know that in addition to uh, paying your old mortgage or, or in addition to paying this new mortgage, this refinance mortgage at a, at a better rate, it's a lower rate. It's a better covenant, so to speak. In addition to that, you have to fulfill the old contract as well. How many of you know that that is a prescription for fiscal bankruptcy? That that means when someone is hitting you with, with the old debt in addition to the new debt, and you have to service both. Likewise, when people say that you have to uphold the law Even though Jesus came to to usher in grace, what you're saying is that spiritually you have two notes or two debts to fulfill. And that is a recipe for spiritual bankruptcy. I'll be here all week. Wait, wait. Okay, so you you told the parable, Derek. I need the interpretation of the parable now. Yeah, break it it down a little bit more. Break it down a little more. Like It's it's really simple. if, If I go to refinance my home, then that means the first order of business is to settle the old debt. That that means that that debt, it doesn't mean that it never existed. It simply means that it no longer has any, it's no longer enforceable because it's satisfied. Yeah, because it's been fulfilled, right? So so your point would be then, I think, if I'm following you, that um, the old covenant has been fulfilled and therefore it doesn't need to be covered. Yeah, I mean, the the way I... The way I understand it, that's pretty close to where I think I'm coming from. The way I look at it is, um, and it took me a while to notice it, but um, but what happens in verse 18 is when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So for the longest time, I was told to understand that as, or paraphrase that as, well, okay, what Jesus just said there was that the old covenant, the law, would never, ever, ever be abolished. Because, well, look, he says, until heaven and earth disappear, I look out the window, well, heaven and earth is there's, out there. Now, there's, what's there's, missing, there's what's an missing, interpretation of that. Yeah, hold that, on, let me, let, me, let me just point this out. Let me just point okay. this out, because this is, this is even simpler. What, what most Christians missed, and what I missed most of my life, was that there are two until statements in that sentence. And most Christians are only trained to read one of them. So we only hear the first until, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. 
we think the sentence ends there, but then he, it doesn't end there. It keeps going. And then there's a second until, until everything is accomplished. So then, ah, so there's two until statements. So it's not that the law will last until heaven and earth are, are, uh, are, you know, abolished or fade away. It's that heaven and earth, the law will remain uh, as long as heaven and earth is there until it's accomplished. And once it's fulfilled or accomplished, guess what? Done. Then it will fade away. Now, that, there, there's, one, there's one more angle, one more curveball I want to throw in there. And, and this is a, 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 a nod to the preterists, right? The, the preterists believe that heaven and earth refers to the, the, the uh, it's, it's a reference to the temple. That, that, when, that when that temple passed away, and and uh, since this is the heretic happy hour, I'm going full heretic. That that basically this is the pre- this is the preterist view. Preterism I is mean, not heresy. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it, according to mainstream Christianity, it, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm I'm completely on board with preterism, but I'm also completely on board with your with your point because you showed me something just now that I'd never seen. The second until, and yeah, so yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. It was it was a massive thing in my life when I saw it, and then when I when I'm talking to Christians about this topic and that verse, I've actually literally told them there's two until statements, and they will read it read it a couple of times, and they only see one. It takes them a while to see that second. Dude, one. that was that was eye opening. I will admit I had to read it like a couple of times while you were talking, Keith, to um, yeah. to see that as well. And I I have not done my Greek homework today, but you know I'm taking a different viewpoint which is, and this is part of my training, is that I'm really, really trained to screen myself for potential anti, uh, anti-Jewish anti or, or particular sort of readings that like separate old covenant, new covenant, and draw hard lines there. And for me, what this verse, you know, particularly verse 17, really requires is that we understand what the law and the prophets are in a new way. And so the old sort of the old way of uh, kind of traditional Christianity is to understand the law and the prophets as legalistic um, having to be fulfilled in a in a particular prescribed way. And mm-hmm. I think the way I see this is that um, Jesus is really speaking into what the spirit of the law and the prophets are. He's speaking into what um, not not a legalistic perspective, but um, how the Torah, how the prophets speak about a way of life, how they speak about um, the sort of a, a, a greater truth than can be even captured in an iota, uh, you know, than can be captured by a Greek letter on on paper. And that Jesus doesn't, the, the word fulfill, um, I guess I did do a tiny bit of Greek homework here, but that the work, um, the word in Greek that we usually translate as uh, fulfill can also be translated in a sense of completion. So Jesus comes to make our understanding of the Torah and the prophets more complete. And then we see that in all the reinterpretation of the Torah that follows in chapter five. So I want to, sh- my, my personal perspective is really shifting away from a, um, any kind of dichotomy between old and new and more towards the union of completion. So that's kind of my, um, part of my training and part of my metaphysical stuff all coming into unity and union, which I enjoy. So how would, in your in your understanding, how would completion differ from accomplishment or fulfillment? Um, sometimes the fulfillment, I don't know that it, it 
differ so much in my interpretation, but sometimes fulfillment has this, like, like we said, we can get away, we can, we can do away with the old, but what Jesus doesn't do away with the old, Jesus reinterprets the old. Okay. Cause yeah, I would say he does do away with the old. So that's, that's, I, I think he does would. away with it too. And, and he, you know, he, because he, he goes on, um, in multiple other passages where he says, um, you heard it said, but I say, in, in other words, he's, he's minimizing the old. Or correcting, yeah, he's correcting. Or correcting. Mm-hmm. He's reinterpreting. Yeah. He's no, that's reinterpreting. That's way of looking at it. But yeah. you know, what, yeah. the, the other thing that I look at is like fulfilled when you think of like, and we all love to see Amazon packages on our doorstep, right? So you get an Amazon package, but you know, th- that's part of their, what they call their fulfillment process. And when you place the order and the order is shipped, once it's received, then it's fulfilled. There's nothing else to ship. There's nothing else to do other than to simply enjoy what's in the package. So when I think of fulfillment, I think that, hey, you know, that everything everything that was intended for us has now been shipped. It's been delivered. It's here. It's at hand. It's here. It's now. Yeah, and I, I think I I think I fall more in line with um with what Katie is saying. I, I, I take it in a more like allegorical approach. And I like what um Father Richard Rohr, friend of the show, has said about about this kind of stuff. It's almost like an allegory for one's life. We start with some prohibitions in Torah, and we start as youngsters with a very, um, let's see, childish way of approaching it. A very do not do this, do not do that. And and as we go throughout our adolescence and teenage and young adult life, we, we get more into the prophetic tradition. We get more questioning. We get more reinterpreting. We get less literalism and more creative, you know, kind of rabbinic stuff. And then we get the fulfillment and we have the aha moment. But when we have the aha moment, and that's the gospel, I don't think we look back at, at our more uh, literal approach and say, oh, just get rid of all that shit. And and we we tend to um, to put it in a dichotomy, and I don't like that. I like looking back on our history and saying, "Well, that's where we came from—a very literalistic approach of of every jot and tittle of the law needs to be the letter of the law." Rather than, well, let's look at it. The spirit of the law was there, and and the goal was peace. The goal was how do we live with each other in in a positive way. And sure, we can take it out of context and become legalistic. We can become, we can beat people over the head with the law. But I don't know if that was ever the goal of a uh, spirit-led interpretation of the law, which I think Jesus was well within his Jewish right to have that approach. And and so I don't know if I would want to just say, oh, it just came to say, oh, the law doesn't matter anymore, because that's where it's where we start. Yeah. I think um, here, here's where I would like for us to, or at least I'm curious about how we would each respond to this. The idea, so I, I, I'm tracking with everybody's saying, and I'm not even disagreeing, you know, in a hard way with, with a lot of the nuances and spin that we're putting on the different ways we're seeing this. But I'm, I'm curious then what we mean in literal practice of like, okay, right now then, Am I supposed to keep the Sabbath? Do I need to keep the law? And and then you know, and so or if I have if I've 
or, or, or is it something where that I would say, well, look, Jesus sort of reframes it and simplifies it in more of a way of saying, look, uh, all of these things are summarized in this love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing these things, you will keep the law. And so in, in other words, am I keeping these specific laws in a very rigid way now where I'm expected to keep these laws? Like I'm a seventh day Adventist or I'm a, uh, or I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Jewish person, you know, observing the Sabbath or whatever like that. Or is it like, no, I don't need to do those things, but I will still fulfill them in spirit if I will truly seek to love God and love others in my actual life. Well, I think it's almost like this, if I can use an analogy, like, do you need to literally drive 30 miles an hour if the speed limit says 30 miles an hour? Well, no, the spirit of that is being safe. You wouldn't want to go 30 miles an hour if there's a bunch of children in the road or if it's snowing. Um, but if you go 32 miles an hour and no one's on the road, it's it's fine. The goal of it is to be safe. Mm-hmm. So, so in the same way, like, like the Ten Commandments, you don't need a list of Ten Commands if you love God and love your neighbor, because when you love someone, you won't murder them or you won't desire their shit right. and yeah, try yeah, and try yeah. to steal their bike. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so you, so you don't necessarily, but you start with prohibitions because, as Gerard points out, this is where we need to start, right? Because and they in that in and of themselves inflame our desire to do things, which is typical human psychology. When you tell me not to do something, I. I have this almost like inflamed desire to do that very thing that you tell me not to do. Yeah. But the goal of it is to get me to not do it, even though it cannot satisfy in the fullest way. And so I I, I think that's why Jesus flips the whole thing. When he, he goes from do not like, do not, uh, you know, thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not. He goes to thou shalls because he he puts a, a, a positive on it rather than a negative. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking that 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 the prohibitions are basically to show how uh ridiculous the law is. That that there is absolutely no way that you can keep this. There's absolutely no way that you can fulfill this. And so because of that, you know, Jesus is like, hey, here, look, let me show you how impossible your task really is, so that I can show you a better way. Because the 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 first thing that he's doing is is you know he's throwing out all the all the, all the prohibitions. Basically, he's int- reintroducing the law on steroids, and and telling you that there's no way you can uphold this. There's no way you can fulfill this. But I'm going to show you a better way, and I and I think that that's more that's what my interpretation of, of what Jesus is doing is. Yeah, I'm kind of disagreeing with that. I don't think it's hard to keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, yeah. like it's hard on a human level because you know I get jealous and I. Well, no, just Go. the 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 tin is the tip of the iceberg. It, we're not talking about the just the tip. We're talking about the whole thing, right? Because and so this is where yeah. I'm. This is where I'm talking about. I think we're misunderstanding what law and prophets are. We're saying that they're only legalistic. Jesus is in a stream like Micah, who says there's some spirit and some oomph to these. I'm going to give you my take, but it's the it's the sort of um, ballsiness of Jesus to reinterpret these in a kind of public way uh, that we have recorded here that also I love it because now I'm like, oh, we're still cont- continued to um, reinterpret as well. Yeah, right? I, I, yeah I, I agree that with you, Katie, in that sense that I don't think Jesus' point is you can't do this. I, I, I think it's actually, I think if that is what he meant, then it makes no sense that he ends the entire Sermon on the Mount by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? I think he's actually telling you things you can do, and um, that might, uh, maybe on the surface they seem 
you know, hard, difficult or even impossible. But I think Jesus' point is, no, I'm going to show you how to do it, right? Like, there's this sort of mimetic thing going on where it's like, look, follow me and I'll show you how you can do these things. Like, you you actually can, if if you do love God and you do love your neighbors yourself, you will do these things, you know? Um, so, uh, I don't know that I would agree that he's well, saying you, you can't. Know, Jesus, you fast forward and Jesus heals on the Sabbath. They gather yes. corn on the Sabbath. Yeah. So it's it's like he's ba- basically he's violating the very law that he's that that he seems to be reinforcing. And, he, and he's it, violating that, a particular interpretation of that law. And like others in Jesus' day would have also agreed with Jesus and be like, of course you can heal heal on the Sabbath. Like that's a reinterpretation of well, that, uh, of those letters of the law. That, that was a point of disagreement for the uh, for the the legal scholars. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're debating it, and Jesus right. is part of the debate. Yeah. 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 So that, doesn't this? All, I mean, it all comes down the, the the Torah, the law, the prophets. It all comes down to hermeneutics, right? And, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's it's yeah. hermeneutics, but it, I think that there's also what um, you know the, the the hermeneutic is important because that that determines the exegesis, right? So you know, if you're if you're using one hermeneutic, your exegesis is going to Come out, you know, something else is coming out on the other side. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, and again, maybe uh, I'm going to just say up front, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But I, at the moment. Only once. Only once. Yeah. Well, no, more than once. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, what, I've, been, what I, I've been wrong a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I have. Um, but like, I, I, again, I, I'll admit I do have a certain bias or I have a certain filter with which I look at. Jesus' statement here about how, you know, uh, the, the law uh, will not disappear until it's been accomplished. But even that, even in that same sentence or that same statement above that, he says, I have not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them, and they won't disappear until I fulfill them, or they are fulfilled. And at the end of his ministry, he says, it is fulfilled. Finished. It is finished. And I feel like there's a consistency, even in the writings of Paul, Galatians especially, um, about how Christ is the end of the law and how uh, in Hebrews, of course, you know, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrew, Hebrews actually says that the, um, the old covenant is obsolete. And Paul says several times that the, the, the law is fading away and, and disappearing and vanishing, and it's being replaced by a better covenant. So right. I do feel like G- that, that, that Paul um, takes what Jesus is saying here Takes and is wanting to emphasize that Jesus did fulfill these things, and that because He fulfilled them, we are now under this new covenant, um, and which is a different thing. It's it's not the same thing, right? It's not the old covenant with a cross on it. Yep, I can't quite. Exactly. I, yeah, so I used to be there, and I'm not there anymore. Um, and I don't saying it is it is finished from John um, doesn't. I don't know that doesn't help me understand the uh, Sermon on the Mount particularly. So I do think that Paul. Um, is you know is in a stream of talking about uh, talking about new covenant, but Paul is writing Galatians way before the Gospel of Matthew is being right. written down, right? As well, um. So I think we can see a couple of streams in early Christianity, and I don't feel the need to unify them. There doesn't have to be one answer. There's there's a couple of different ways. Um, the early Christians were understanding their relationship to Judaism. So we know in the second, third century, there were Christian bishops who were writing to 
um, congregations and saying, you have to stop going to um, synagogue on Saturday and to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So there were early Christians who were understanding themselves as standing, as bridging Judaism and Christianity. So right. this is a slow split. Right. Now, that's can, I, can I just yeah. say something or ask you what you think about it? Because yeah. yeah, you're right. I did quote John to, to, to cap off the Jesus saying he fulfilled it. But when Jesus says in verse 17, uh, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then the next statement is that they won't disappear until they are fulfilled. Do you think he didn't fulfill them? I think he, I think we are fulfilling them. Okay. So then but, if we're fulfilled, Jesus is alive. Yeah. Jesus is alive. I mean, Jesus, I mean, in my theology, right? Jesus is here. Jesus is present. They are always being fulfilled throughout the work of the people of God. And so, I hope they've not been fulfilled because the world's a holy mess. So are, are, are we still working on fulfilling the law? I mean, are we still beholden to the law at some level? Beholden, um, it's, it's, I, you know, I'm not legalistic. So I think it's always being completed. Like we're always reinterpreting it. So, so just like Jesus reinterprets it here, I feel like I'm always being called to reinterpret it as well. So is it like I, uh, the idea, sorry, sorry, Matt, but I just right. want to ask these questions real quick. If it is, um, I just want to make sure I understand what Katie's saying. So is it what you're saying is that the fulfillment is an ongoing fulfillment that's been going on since Jesus, and anytime we love our enemy, bless those who curse us, turn the other cheek, uh, et cetera, fulfill the, do the things that Jesus says to do in the Sermon on the Mount, we are continuing to fulfill. Well, yeah, I think we're continuing to fulfill, and that Jesus is also continuing to fulfill. Like that, you know, whenever it was written down, do not murder, I think that's a really good law. I think that's an, you know, that's, that's one that I uh, want to live by, right? Like, do not murder. I don't think Jesus abolishes that. I hope not. That no, would suck. I, I, would, I would say that if you, if you love, you won't destroy. Yeah, well, and like one of the things I think we see in the Ten Commandments, so here's the, um, the 25-cent word for the day, um, they're apodictic laws, and those are mm-hmm. very rare. And so they are absolutes. Don't do this without consequences. And what we see in the rest of Exodus, you know, Leviticus numbers, is that we see the consequences. Okay, but if you do murder, these, this is what's going to happen. Did they get all of that completely right? No, you know, they're, they're Iron Age people who are writing out laws uh, that fit with their, you know, their norms, their morals, um, that have things, you know, have stratifications in their society that I think are wrong. Um, and so we now continue to fulfill that in different ways. How do we understand do not murder? Jesus gives us one way. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And can I just, uh, I don't know if I'm being obtuse, and I apologize if I am. Uh, Unless we're Jewish, would any Jews, like, care if, I mean, Jews didn't really care if Gentiles were fulfilling the law or not, or doing anything with the law, and the law was not for non-Jewish people. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to, like, sound crass, but... I, I'm I'm no longer even self-identifying as a Christian, and I'm not Jewish. <laughs> um, so why the fuck should I even care what these laws are? And that's and if you're Jewish, please do your thing. But I'm just not, and I'm not even really a Christian anymore. I for me, I find Buddhism more practical. So, yeah, I'm right there with you. I, you know, the in my in my opinion. This is, and I could go into a really deep thing on this. I'm not going to go on to that tangent, but I, I really believe that that there that there was a human component to the law, not a divine one, and 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 that when we you know try to make divine what is actually 
you know, natural, human, carnal, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's that's when it goes off the rails. So so Jesus is basically saying, you know, like you had all this law, and I'm here to tell you that it's all bullshit. I'm I'm that's where I am. Well, let's maybe we could talk about some of the individual applications. Yeah, please. Yes. So, yeah, and see, because let's 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 bring it home. Because I'm I'm not quite I'm not seeing it. Bring us home. Bring us home. Come on. <laughs> it, it's okay. all good. We're, we're not going to agree on everything, and, and I'm no, cool. no, that's not the point. Yeah. I'm just exactly. I'm just struggling, um, in a good way. Um, so let's look at let's go right into verse 21. Um, you have heard it said that it uh, to those in ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Yep. Yeah. And so you're right. It's, he's not saying, you know, that murder thing, forget it. You don't have to keep no. that murder thing. But, no, but you're right. He's saying, look, he, it's, he goes even deeper than this to. Right. He's adding more get, to it. Yeah. Before you even get to murder, it's going to begin with you having this contempt for your brother or your sister. And that's where it begins. And that's what you need to be worried about and concerned about this, these modes. It's a hard of issue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I take it back even further, back to uh, Cain and Abel, you know, the first homicide. Okay. So in, in that particular case, Cain kills Abel. And what does God do? God extends grace to him, puts a mark on him so that he's not killed, right? Mind you, you go to uh, is the numbers numbers chapter six uh, numbers chapter sixteen. I don't remember exactly where it is, but some poor slob is picking up sticks on a Sabbath, and and he gets he gets killed. He gets stoned to death. So so the the thing Sinner. is is that yeah, I mean, but what what I'm saying is is here Cain kills Abel. If God wanted to hit Control All Delete on this guy, that was the moment. Yeah. If there was if there was a moment where where God's judgment, His righteous judgment, should kick in, that's the moment. That's the first homicide. Yeah. And in the fir- in the first homicide, we don't see law; we see grace. Yeah, we don't and even see wrath. We don't even see the no, wrath of God. Nothing. No wrath. Nothing. Yeah. Okay, but that's part of the Torah. That's part of the law. So that to me, this is the brilliance. This is the absolute brilliance of the Hebrew Bible in general. Uh, the Hebrew Bible says. Um, People fuck it up, and sometimes people get it right, and we're going to include all of that. We're going to include it all. We're going to include the whole human experience, what we get right, what we get wrong, and we're going to keep on trudging down this pathway until we get it more right. We're always trying to get it more right. Right. True. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, that Cain and Abel story is part of the Torah, part of the beauty and horror. And so is the reconciliation of Esau and, and Jacob, and so is so yeah. is Joseph forgiving all of his brothers. There's gospel all throughout the Torah. I mean, there's yeah. there is hey, all that. I, good I, stuff. I get that. I'm not I'm not dismissing that. Although I'm I'm not a Bible literalist, so I'm. But the 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 point is, I see the gospel in those in those instances. However, when I look at the law, you know, basically what I look at is a system that was put in place. For the express purpose of manipulation and control, and I what think what are you defining when, as the law in terms of like what what in the Old Testament? Basically, I'm talking about the Mosaic Law, the 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 um the, the Decalogue plus the other 603. Okay? okay, so that's 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 what I'm talking about specifically. Yeah, like stoning your children if they disobey you, or or, somebody. or, or wearing mixed thread fabrics, or yeah, very, or, yeah. or, eat, or or eating meat with cheese. You know, it's like, I mean, literally a cheeseburger would get you stoned. That's right, buddy. 
Oh, not until in, the instead of eating instead of eating the cheeseburger yeah. after you're stoned, you know. <laughs> so some of the legalism, some of the legalism that we are, um, uh, I believe, speaking, you know, speaking about is actually doesn't come about until the splits between Christianity and Judaism. Judaism begins to define itself against a system that was rejecting it. And that's when we get some of those laws like not mixing, you know, meat and and cheese that comes from a little bit later in the Talmud. Um, So sometimes I think we reinsert sort of some of the, some of the, some of the um, legalism that's actually later than the New Testament back into the Old Testament. But I understand the Torah as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, not as a legalistic system, but as a systemic whole that speaks about um, a system of grace, a system of failure, a system of um, understanding who we are in response to God. So I think we're working with very different definitions of what the law is. But the law was was a legal code. It was a legal framework for you know basically policing and and controlling, for better or worse, not, the, not control is always necessarily a bad thing if control is preventing people from murder, um, because that's bad. Um, but, but yet, I mean, you can't argue that you don't make, no society creates a law without the intention of some kind of control. Sure. You make laws about what people are already doing. You very rarely make laws about what um, a perceived threat. Yeah. Right, well, so you know, you're not murder, and then you make a bunch of laws. It was like, oh, but but shit, this is still happening. People are still murdering. Yeah, yeah. You're not following that apodictic law, and then you make laws about that. But but if you, we back up and see Genesis one, Genesis two, all of that as part of the law, I'm curious if that. No, no, no. I don't see all of that as part of the law. No, no, no. So it's I part mean, of we're the not Torah. Ta- we're not, yeah, we're not. When I talk of, about the law, I'm talking about the law. <laughs> I am too. That's yeah, what I'm the, saying. The, the mosaic law. Yeah. Like, no, I mean, most, you know, no most the word law in Greek is a translation of Torah. Yeah, but I mean, it's, let, let me let me take a moment to go complete heretic on here because if, if it were if it were up to me, if it were up to me, that I'd start with Genesis and then I then I'd skip all the way to Matthew. And and that and that. <laughs> Dude, uh, come on, man! Isaiah, no, uh, Psalms. These are great. I'm, you can't yep. do those. Joe. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's you're, me. That's you're Marcian. Me. Yeah, there you go. He's a freaking Martian. Oh, Martian is back. <laughs> Look out. If that makes me a bigger heretic than that, I'm all with it. But, but you're, that's well, you're, that. you're a you know nice second century heretic. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about let's talk about divorce. Yeah, let's talk about divorce. I do love yeah, we need to talk about this because I, I think this is a very abused passage because yeah. but here's the thing, it's not just about divorce because this the same verse is also used a lot. This is verse, by the way, uh, 31, chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, it's not only about divorce, um, it's quite often referenced as the verse where famously, supposedly, Jesus, quote-unquote, defines marriage. Oof. He does not. Can I just no. say this? Oof. No one asked Amen. Jesus, please define marriage for me. No, what they did was they started with an assumption of what marriage was between a man and a woman and had a question about divorce. It was not a question about defining marriage. Anyway, I have to say that right off the bat. Yeah, but what about polygamy? I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, listen, I mean, it, that right. that just got that got completely glossed over in this. Yeah, exactly. But it was a thing. It was a thing. It was just almost assumed. It was in, in very openly accepted. Yeah. Yeah, not by the by the first century not it was rarely practiced. But before that, yeah. But nothing scripturally that says, you know, don't do this. No. 
Custom. Yeah, it's custom. Yeah. Okay. So the verse, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Yeah. I've seen people say in too many really messed up relationships because of verse, you know, interpretations. Yep. Of oh, yeah. Like wow. Yeah. And, and I just want to say this about this verse, um, that what, what we think is going on, because we tend to port our culture onto the culture that Jesus is speaking to in this, in this verse, and we say, oh, there you go. The only way and the only basis for anyone getting a divorce is, is for adultery. And therefore, you know, if your husband is verbally abusing you and getting drunk and scaring the hell out of you and the kids and, you know, sh shooting shotgun off in the house and all this other stuff, yeah. but he's not, he did commit adultery then you can't yeah, force him. That is not. You have to, you have to stay together. Keep, yeah. You have to stay together because <laughs> so, that's the biblical way. Right. So this is not at all what Jesus means to say. Now, here's what we have to understand in the culture Jesus is speaking to is the fact that in that culture, a man and a man only really has the power to divorce his wife. And it's something he used as a way uh, to oppress the woman because the women had really no yep. place in that culture. And so the man at will could just say, you know what? I'm done with you. I divorce you. I'm going to go get a younger, hotter model. And and that woman, if she was, especially if she was older, right, she's probably not going to get remarried because now she's sort of considered unclean. She can't really, you know, provide. Quite often she's left with the kids if there's any small children. And, and so like it's almost a death sentence for a man to just arbitrarily at will divorce, divorce his wife. And he has all the power. Now, when Jesus says that we got to pay attention to this, this is so critical. When Jesus reframes it and says to the men, the only reason you have to divorce your wife is if the wife commits adultery. That puts the power of the decision to break the marriage covenant in the hands of the woman. The yep. woman now has all the power to decide when and if this marriage is going to be dissolved, not the man. And, and in fact, you can see what a shock it was when Jesus says this, because the reaction of the disciples after he says this is, um, you know, why get married at all? The disciples are like freaking out. They can't even believe he would say that. Where do the disciples freak? Oh, I think it's in Luke. I think it's in the version. Oh, okay. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping okay. over out of the yeah. map. Hey, Keith, Keith, I just got to tell you, man, that explanation is sexy as fuck. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, so I want to, yeah, I want to affirm that I do think that this is a, I think this is a verse that ultimately is attempting to um, protect people who were less protected. I want to also counter the idea that women had no power in the ancient world. Um, I think that's the truth that we tell little girls that is damaging to them. Um, uh, women wielded power in their own spheres in different ways. It may not be in sort of legal terms. I think one of the things we also see in the ancient world um, outside of Judaism, like in the Roman world, is that a lot of women were divorcing and then staying unmarried because they really liked it. <laughs> they really liked, they really liked not having a husband to um, have to, you know, have to come home to. And there's a sort of sexual libertine thing that's happening among uh, upper class Roman women who are choosing to remain divorced or remain widowed as well. And so there's a, there's a lot of mixture, I think, of things that are, that are happening here. Um, I don't think Jesus is sort of promoting um, like sexual freedom here necessarily, but um, there's all those kind of cultural factors that are happening uh, in this, you know, in this particular uh, verse. And so Keith, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm leaning into, is this giving women the power 
Yes, we don't see that played out necessarily in early Christianity, unfortunately. So I'm curious, it, it never really kind of lifts off the ground, if that's the case. Well, you know, I, there's, I, another, there's another case, too, where, where it looks like he's stripping away power because it says that whosoever shall put, a, put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And, and now, here's the thing, right? There's never any mention of the, of the husband committing adultery. Now, it says later, it says that if anybody should marry her that is divorced, commits adultery. So if by that same standard, wouldn't the husband be committing adultery with an adulterous wife? Yeah, there's still some patriarchy here. Yeah, yeah. well, yep. I think that's in that's general what Jesus is trying to is come against is this patriarchal system that, that keeps women at the bottom with the less power. And I believe yep. he's empowering women by giving them this, this corrected teaching. I would also like it, though, like as Derek alluded to, if there was also a verse in there about causing um, whenever, whenever, you, whenever you give a certificate of divorce to your wife, you're actually also committing adultery, too. So I found it, actually. It's, it's later on in Matthew. Matthew 19 is the, uh, when he goes into the thing about the divorce uh, in more detail, when he says... Uh, you know, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman uh, commits adultery. And so in that case, he says, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now there, the man is the one committing adultery. Oh, and, nice. and, the, yeah. and then the disciples' response is this. If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Like they're like, sh- they're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. If a, if a man no longer has the ability to divorce a woman at will anymore, and it's now it's only on this case of divorce, and now you're putting the power back in the woman's hand. Why bother to get married at all? Like they don't even understand why. Why would a man want to get married if you can't just do that? And their reaction to me is a show is very telling wow. of like what a radical statement this was in their in their minds of like what are you talking about, Jesus? And right after that is that verse about eunuchs that's you know yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that verse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where if it was in today's culture, it'd be a, a lot di- something different would be said. This is one of those verses well, that yeah. I or passages that yeah. I I typically don't like. I just like this is this doesn't apply to us in 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 any sort of practical way for me. Like I love I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's very practical in a lot of ways, but this is one where it's like going back to our point at the start. It's like to me like. I'm not condoning committing adultery at all, but there are far worse things that that could go on in a marriage that people can then use this type oh, yeah. of passage to to abuse someone for years and years, yeah. uh, se- sexually, uh, physically, emotionally, emotionally yeah. financially. I mean, in yeah. so many ways that I, I don't know. I I bet if Jesus was around now and 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 I know Katie, he's still alive and all that. But in my theology, I'm fine with that too. But yes, I know. Um, but if he was like literally here in the in the same way you and I were here, um, I think he would say it differently. But that's I'm just I'm just guessing. I I or had more to say on it because this is a different context we're in. And this is I sometimes those passages that are, are abused and used yeah. to abuse. I just cringe at, and I'm like, just cut that out. Yeah. See, no, uh, I would, what I would say is like, uh, to Katie's point, I would say Christ is here today because I have the mind of Christ and we have the yep. mind of Christ. We are the incarnation yep. of Christ. And therefore the Christ in me can look at what's going on with situations today. And I believe I can, you know, in the same way Christ would look at it and say, 
that's messed up and you know this isn't good. And so I think we have the ability to correct those things and bring that sort of Christ reaction and response and vision to something that we see happening in front of us. I, I, me, I agree. Yeah, and to me, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus reinterprets. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> Jesus takes an ancient saying and then interprets it for his day. And I yeah. think I feel called to do the same. Yeah, yeah. I do. Right? I do so, too. yeah, the verse yeah. on a, on adultery or divorce is not making sense in our context. We're called to interpret it so that it does and not yeah. be legalistically tied to it. Amen. Yeah. I, I, I like that. And I will lose my liberal street cred, but I do affirm the resurrection. So with Woo! that, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But I just want our risen. listeners. Yeah, he is risen indeed. Um, I, <laughs> I want to remind everyone that we have a website. It's heretichappyhour.com. You can stay up to date on all of the latest episodes and all of the latest merch, swag, stuff we all get. So make sure you check out Heretic Happy Hour. Go to the store, check out the episodes and all that good stuff. Um, we would love listeners to join us in our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. We have 2,039 heretics as of today, just like you, asking us all the, t- the tough, tough questions. And come join there because Derek puts out really awesome videos that you can engage with and discuss and they get all the comments. And so come <laughs> see for yourself. And join our Patreon group too. Um, if you become a Patreon member, you can get to be part of our exclusive Patreon group where all four of us will interact with you with love, kindness, and the usual snarkiness. So come on and join that too. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, here's the thing, guys. If you love the Heritage Capillary podcast, this is only the tiniest little bit. You're all not getting it all. You're missing all the bonus stuff we have in the Patreon page, all the extra interviews we do, all the extra conversations we have uh, after we say good day at the end of this podcast. Um, so many amazing things, as well as Katie mentioned, access to this private uh, Facebook group, the Heritage Capillary group on Facebook. So listen, don't miss out. Stop missing out for as little as $2 a month, my friends. You can get it all. You can have it all. Come on, two dollars a month. Come on, do it. That's it. Do it. And if you listen to this and like this, please rate this five stars on iTunes. I pity the fool. I pity the fool (laughs) who doesn't rate us five stars on iTunes. Get that rating in. Like, subscribe, and share this with everybody because people need to hear. They do. Something. Yeah. Something yeah. off the beaten path. They really do. 